Welcome to Woke Isn't Enough, a podcast created by two women of color who think that it's time to move collectively beyond checking the boxes when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm Jess Aiden Lee, and I'm here with my colleague, Fiona Oliphant, and we are the founders of Healing Equity United. Hi, Fiona. How's it going? Hey, Jess. It's going well. Going well. And you? Uh, hanging in there. You know, I think I think that the longer we do this, the work, you know, in diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, the more checklists that people ask for. I feel like we're getting emails about like, can you give me a checklist of the things that we need to do, right? And as someone who loves to-do lists, I can understand. I can understand a desire to be like, okay, these are the 10 things I need to do to become an anti-racist organization. What do you think about that? I think that you're absolutely right. And I think that um, it requires a level of patience and perseverance from all folks who are really trying to spur continued and sustainable change to engage these folks in dialogue that's necessary to get them to understand that checklists alone are not going to do it. They're just not going to do it. We have to dive deeper, work harder. And you know what, Jess? I really believe that it might be reflect a reflection of our society at large in which we want everything in uh, the 10-second or 30-second soundbite, right? We want to encapsulate all problems in a you know, five-bullet memo. Uh-huh. Okay, this is how we do it. And now we're done. Hey, the less reading I got to do, the more support I have for it. You know, you know how I roll. (laughs) I know that you are loath to pick up and dive into the 600 page book. I don't know why anyone, Dr. Kendi, would write a 600 page book. (laughs) But I, uh, I can understand that there are lots of people reading that 600 page book. But anyway, I mean, uh, let's talk a little bit about, you know, the importance of of why it's not just a checklist, right? Because I think sometimes when people talk about checklists, they're really also asking for a process, right? What's step one? What's step two? What's step three? Et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, and so uh, what do you think about that? I think that's understandable. I think that's understandable. And it's fine to desire and and request a roadmap if there is an understanding that the individual movement has to be flexible. It has to be iterative. You're going to um, have to be able to adapt to challenging situations as they arise, and that might technically look like a step backward. But then if you take the time to pause, be thoughtful, um, be creative, be responsive to what you're encountering, then the advance forward would be even greater. 
So for example, a lot of the things that we get requests for, as you mentioned or you alluded to earlier, was the request for the one training, right? Like two trainings, one or two. One or two. Ooh, two trainings. I know. And, right? <laughs> and uh, folks would like to believe that by the conclusion of those two trainings, that their staff will be able to implement, ignore, be satisfied with the rest of the work that's required. And so, you know, back to your initial question about that that roadmap or that agenda or that um, formula that people are asking us for, you know, it, it, it's okay to have a general outline. That's okay. As long as you recognize that the training alone is not going to do it. The one or two sessions alone is not going to do it. The um, five checklist items is not going to do it. Mm -hmm. It requires something that is far more substantive. It requires a reset of our mindset, our mindset of how we engage each other, how we um, think about our individual journeys. Mm -hmm. And it requires that it be less focused on the quick action and more focused on the sometimes intangible yet more rewarding process. What do you think about that, Jess? I think it's hard for people to look within. I think it's a lot easier for us to look at our organization, what isn't happening, what should happen. I think it's a lot easier to look at someone else and be like, you need to do these things. Here's your checklist. I think doing the internal stuff is really hard. And so I think that that's why sometimes a lot of us just default to like, you know, what I talk about as like the performative of always looking for a checklist, right? So like, I think it's really, it takes a lot of guts to look within and be like, I, I have my own stuff that I need to work on. These are the ways that I've harmed people. These are the ways that I have not listened or acknowledged other people's harms and pain. And these are the things that I need to do on a very regular basis. I think sometimes about, you know, the comments that, that we get uh, in some of our workshops that it's, you know, I, I know all this stuff, right? I know everything and everything about racism and oppression. And I wish these trainings were way more advanced. And, and I, I think one of the things to think about is like, yes, that could be true that you know all of the methodology that Fiona is providing, all of the definitions, right? But what's going on in the environment? What is going on in the workshop with the rest of your peers who oftentimes are taking this type of workshop or training for the first time, right? And what's going on for you that you're feeling that sort of defensiveness? Absolutely. You know, it reminds me of we were recently engaging with um, some folks and one participant got really defensive around being pushed to do more 
And um, they alluded to the fact that so much money and time and resources have been spent on DEIB. And they, they pointed to a dollar amount that the organization mm-hmm. has spent on training and they yep. pointed to, you know, consultants engaged. But when we dug deeper to ask about, like, what were the substantive changes um, and how did that feel for staff mm-hmm. on a day-to-day basis, yes. they were still they were still feeling harmed. They were still feeling excluded. They were still feeling that their voices weren't being heard, right. that their experiences were being minimized. They were feeling gaslit. Mm-hmm. And so there was a misalignment of what folks thought they were doing as an organization versus the impact that those performative actions were taken. So I guess I would ask you, Jess, because you mentioned the word performative before. Can you tell everybody what you mean by performative and like how would you distinguish that from the internal work that we're talking about? You know, I think performative is like surface level, right? You're barely going underneath um, the water, right? For to look at an iceberg. And I think of it as like performative in terms of like, okay, let's write the, let's write the the statement, the statement that everyone wrote last year, right? Declaring that we are an anti-racist nonprofit and we support black lives, right? Without doing the internal. I think performative is also just asking for that one or two trainings, right? And saying that's all the time we have in the organization to do this work, right? So, and please make your one or two trainings less than an hour, right? And I know, as well as everyone else knows, how, how challenging it can be to listen to Fiona's definitions for hours and hours. But I think the reality is that like less Thanks, than an hour, Jess. you're very welcome. Um, I think the reality that, is that you can't solve these issues in a short training. I think the other thing that's also performative is you know how we ask for that checklist at the beginning, right? So if we look at human resources, aka people and culture, it's like, okay, who do we need to recruit, right? And then which, can you tell us exactly where to post? Can you tell us this whether this job description makes sense without doing the internal work of like, what is wrong with our recruitment process? And what are the biases that we individually hold as people who hire others that are, that are essentially serving as barriers to, you know, diverse candidates wanting to apply or work at our organization or stay at our organization. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that the performative might be the change the recruitment tool Mm -hmm. in order to hire more diverse candidates. Yep. And the internal would be the, and what do we have to do to change the organization's culture so that we retain the diverse staff that we may have hired, as opposed to experiencing that significant turnover that many organizations are are grappling with right now. You know, this makes me think about like how we have been conditioned as a society. And this goes back to what you were saying earlier, Fiona, like we've been conditioned as a society to ask for the checklist, to look for the the process, right? Like, Like in dating, let's talk about dating, okay? So Fiona, when you were a spry young woman, what was 500 years ago? 
five million years ago. We're, didn't we all have like a checklist of what we're looking for in a partner? Right? Our friends would ask us. So what was on your checklist, Fiona? Oh my goodness. He had to be wealthy. He had to be handsome. Oh my god. He gosh. had to be over six feet tall. Um, he had to be well traveled. He had to love reading books. Um my list went on and on and on. Mm-hmm. And actually <laughs> Now, having been with a partner for a really long time and raising a family together, almost none of that was relevant to the important stuff that mattered. Yeah. And so I think that, I mean, what was some of that important stuff, right? Because we're talking about the internal, right? So like, I know for me, you know, the, as I got older, I think the, and because we work in the domestic violence sector, right? I think the questions that we begin asking ourselves, these are the ones that we talk to teenage girls about, right? Are like, what would a healthy relationship look like for me? What do I need and what am I going to bring into the relationship, right? What am I willing to give of myself and not compromise on? What were some of the internal things for you that were not checklist items that you later on realized were important? Yeah, shared values. Mm particularly around family, around how to empower children, about extended family and supporting extended family, about the acceptance of cultural backgrounds Uh and accepting the whole person as opposed to cherry picking which pieces of the person that, um, you know, were most appealing to you mm-hmm. yeah there's a long list of all the other stuff what about you i think i think for me it's like going back full circle so why are we talking about this with respect to you know diversity equity inclusion and belonging is like i needed to look within to really think about what are the biases that i have and hold Right. So like the bias, like one of the the challenges that I had in my life is that like I became an executive director at a very, very young age. Right. Thanks to you. I became an ED very, at a very young age and dating was hard. And I had to really look at my own biases around that because it was like, is it hard? Because I'm assuming that men who are around my age would not want to date an executive director or is it hard? Because I'm making that bias, that I have that bias, right? I think it's it's really thinking about like what are the what are the things that are difficult for us to look within versus like like here are the checklist of things that that we should be focusing on. I think another example of that is is college, right? There's a checklist and a process of things that we're supposed to do in junior high, high school, right? Supposed to get good grades. We're supposed to get great recommendations. We're supposed to volunteer. So we look like we care about the community, even if we don't, right? We're supposed to go to SAT classes if our parents can afford it. We're supposed to get great scores, et cetera, et cetera, versus like doing the internal work of asking ourselves, like, what are the values of the organization? 
what are the things we want out of the experience? Do professors have similar values as us? And I think when we focus so much on the checklist of things, we are, wait, we are losing sight of what is more nuanced and comprehensive. I mean, what do you think, Fiona? I think you're right, because what you're getting at is, at least for that college example, does this college have the culture that I would feel most comfortable and aligned with? Are the students viewing the world from the same perspective and lens that I am, mm-hmm. right? As opposed to, yeah, let's take those AP courses just so that I can get into any college that I apply to. <laughs> Oh my gosh, AP classes. Seriously. Yeah, so I think, but I think you're touching on a a really crucial component of what we get the most pushback around. We ask people to ask themselves how they are perpetuating harm, how they are benefiting from existing systems of oppression and how their inaction is in large part allowing those systems of oppression to continue. And I think for many of the people we work with, many of the people who attend our um, retreats, workshops, trainings, it is far easier to focus on what other people are doing to perpetuate those systems of oppression as opposed to what we are doing, right? What am I doing? And if we focus only on those other people, then all we need is the checklist. I will tell those other people what not to do, what not to say, right? I will tell those other people how to draft the recruitment tool. I will tell Mm -hmm. those other people where to post our job announcements. I will, you know, tell our uh, board to donate this much. I will, I will tell everybody else what to do. Right. And what we are saying is that it's not, I mean, there is some component of that to the work. Yes. But the bulk of the work, the bulk of the iceberg lies beneath the water and, and, and that's us. And that's us. What do you think of that analogy? I think that makes sense. And I think that I think that there's also societally pressure, right? To measure. There's this pressure to measure things. I don't know if you heard about um, Elon Musk saying, you know, if it only takes six billion dollars to end hunger, show me. Prove it to me. Oh my goodness! I heard about that today. Whatever it is, six billion dollars. Prove it, and I'll give it to you. And I'm like, oh, what is with this need to measure success? Right? I, I, I don't, I don't get it. I really, I'm just like, using numbers to evaluate and measure success is just, it doesn't tell you like whether an organization actually has built that culture. Yeah, you can always have numbers like equate to certain, I did take statistics. So, I mean, I think I understand, 
but it's not going to tell you how, in reality, how people feel, how people come in every single day, right? Right. That's right. qualitative, right? So, so I think we need to reimagine what tangible success looks like. And 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 what's what's a good example of that? So one tangible indicator of success is counting the number of BIPOC folks on staff and then coming up with the percentage of your staff and saying, now we have a staff that equitably represents everyone in society, right? Okay, that's one measure. But we think a more robust measure might be all those BIPOC people, Black, Indigenous, and people of color, folks on staff, what level of power sharing are they privy to? What level of power and decision-making are they privy to? Um, Are they able to share their lived experiences in the workplace? Call out and name microaggressions that they face without fear of repercussion, retaliation, of being alienated, of being pushed out, or being marginalized, right? So I think that those are two very, very different measures of success. And I see your face, Jess, you look so distressed. Tell me what's going on. I'm just, um, I think I'm just over it. I'm just, Yeah, I don't, I think I, I have had a really difficult relationship to success, the word success and the feeling of success over the course of my life, right? Because we're taught from a young age, like good grades equal success in school, right? Like, did you get an A, an A plus, 96, whatever, out of 100 on your exam? And, and I think that we tend to reward people and organizations that can show those numerical figures, right? Right. But I, but I think what, what we're missing here is like the impact that it makes on that person, right? So for me, I'm just like, okay, we need to, we need to look at success differently in the nonprofit sector and in government, right? And I think we need to go beyond just the stories and the numbers and I think we need to, to look at, so here, here's a great example, right? Of like how I think we were successful with one particular um, org that we worked with. Okay. So there was um, a, a leader who was really struggling to understand uh, the, the harm that she was creating in the organization she identified as white, as a white woman leader, um, coming from a very privileged background, right? You and I had multiple coaching sessions with her over the course of a couple of months. And afterwards, it was like she read the books that we you recommended, right? The movies that I recommended. And we could see how she changed over the course of those couple of months to where today she's not just sharing power, but also sharing leadership and really 
gave power to her staff to run with, you know, how to deal with, you know, how to, how to manage the EIB. And she saw her role changing in that she's there to support the staff and the clients that they serve, which I think, and, and she also sees her role now as someone who needs to call in other harmful white people. And I think that you and I were so impressed over time with how far she's come that I think that it's something that we don't, you know, think about, right? We don't measure that kind of success. I think you're right. I think that another example might be um, an organization in which their diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging team spent months uh, coming to some kind of understanding about the definitions of the terms that they were using so that they all knew what they were talking about. Um, and they used the term with um, any term. They used the terms with a level understanding. They also spent months coming to um, some kind of agreement around decision-making. They also spent months determining how they would call in or identify harm when it occurred in that space. They also spent months determining how um, the scope of their work, right? Mm -hmm. And at the end of those months, um, they wanted to update the rest of the organization and board about the work that they'd been doing. And they were hard pressed to identify the results of their work. Oh, we haven't done anything. We haven't moved fast enough. And we had to point out to them, no, you've you've laid the foundation for how you are going to um, spearhead the organization's DEIB efforts in a really thoughtful uh, way that shared power and was equitable and could model that for the remainder of the organization. And after we reframed what quote unquote success looked like mm-hmm. and how that invisible work um, was actually work, right? It really changed the way in which they approached the work. Yeah, so, so let me ask you this, you know, what if we're working, for those of us who are working in an organization that's doing the performative checklist stuff, but we don't have the power to change that. And or we're afraid to tell our leadership that the checklist of items that they're checking off, the quantitative measures of success that they're reporting to their funders is performative. Like how, how do we, how, like what can we do? I think it depends on um, the number of BIPOC or um, other marginalized staff are in the organization, right? If there's a critical mass of people, could there be an anonymous memo or um, 
that would go to leadership that says, here are the ways in which we think that current action is insufficient and Mm -hmm. formative. Um, And if it's not an anonymous memo, then maybe you have an entity, whether or not that's an equity team or something, that can share those concerns on behalf of staff without naming any specific individuals. Um, Are there any, so if those are two suggestions, and then another Uh one would be to um, identify any allies and co-conspirators within the organization who might be able to leverage their privileged positions or positional power Uh and can raise um, these issues with leadership. Uh, What are are your suggestions? You know, I think that... I think that you should follow Fiona's advice because I tend to be the calling out person. And if you followed my advice, you probably get in bigger trouble. But I mean, I think part of it is it really is organizing. And I think it really is getting, you know, not just other BIPOC people, but, you know, white co-conspirators or people who who actually have the ear of leadership. Right. I think it's 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 really about that. And so, yeah, I mean, I think we would love to hear from those of you who are struggling with this this checklist, right, and or the difficulty around evaluation and success. Um, let us know what you're doing, what you're thinking, what supports you might need, and uh, we're here for you. 